You are listening to Bonafide Needs, Season 2, Episode 8. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Bill Olver, Managing Editor of the PubK Group. Later in this episode, we'll be hearing from several Arnold and Porter policy analysts who will break down what's happening with this year's National Defense Authorization Act and what it means for contractors. But first, let's look at some headlines. On August 14th, the Office of Management and Budget released its final guidance on grant funds made available under the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. The guidance includes the domestic content requirements included in the Build America Buy America Act, which requires that federally funded infrastructure projects use domestic materials. The BABA applies to iron or steel products, manufactured products, and construction materials. The law requires 100% of iron and steel products and construction materials to be domestically sourced. Manufactured products must have greater than 55% U.S. content. Notably, OMB clarified that the requirements do not apply to federal government direct procurements, but to all federal programs for infrastructure, even if they are not funded through the bipartisan infrastructure law. In July, the Senate voted unanimously to approve an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act that would require that 100% of components for all Navy ships be manufactured in the U.S. by 2033. Beginning in 2026, the bill would require U.S. sourcing for at least 65% of components, That number will jump to 75% in 2028 and 100% in 2033. Earlier this year, the White House dropped its COVID-19 vaccine mandate for federal employees, even as it fought litigation challenging the mandate. The White House has now asked the Supreme Court to vacate a Fifth Circuit decision that blocked the requirement, saying the complaint was mooted by the revocation of the mandate. The White House hopes to have the case dismissed rather than keep in place a potentially precedent-setting ruling on presidential authority over the federal workforce. The plaintiffs continue to call for a permanent injunction on such requirements. Members of the House Veterans Affairs Committee say that the Department of Veterans Affairs isn't doing enough to identify or prevent conflicts of interest when working with consultants and contractors. During a recent hearing, lawmakers asked VA witnesses about the department's vetting of its contractors. Concerns about conflicts of interest rose earlier this year after the Wall Street Journal reported that one consulting firm was engaged to advise VA on internal management issues while also advising pharmaceutical companies about how to increase their sales to the department. In response to a congressional inquiry, VA Secretary Dennis McDonough said the department had no occasions where it identified a potential or actual conflict, which lawmakers found was not credible. In response, VA Chief Acquisition Officer Michael Parrish noted that the department and GAO had investigated allegations of conflicts, but found that none existed. Senator Elizabeth Warren has come out against the renewal of an expired tax credit sought by large defense contractors. Warren and Representative Chris Deluzio wrote to the CEOs of Lockheed Martin, RTX, Northrop Grumman, and General Dynamics, decrying research and experimentation tax credits as a corporate handout saying that they would add billions in savings to the companies who already benefited from other tax cuts enacted in 2017. The 2017 tax cuts allowed companies to immediately deduct their research and development expenses, but that provision sunsetted in 2022, which required companies to spread that deduction out for a minimum of five years or longer in an amortization period. 
Defense contractors and industry groups have lobbied for the restoration of the immediate deduction. A proposal in the Senate is supported by 19 Democratic lawmakers. And after a very exciting summer on the False Claims Act front, events continue to evolve. Uh, first, let's take a look back to some topics covered in our prior episodes. The Seventh Circuit vacated and remanded the two cases at the heart of the Supreme Court's holding on the knowledge standard. Schutte v. Supervalue and Proctor v. Safeway are now back at the District Court for further consideration, taking into account the High Court's decision. In a case before Virginia District Court, the Department of Justice has soundly rejected a defendant's assertion that the Schutte decision established a new reckless disregard standard that requires relators to show that defendants were conscious of a substantial and unjustifiable risk that their claims were false. DOJ argued that the Supreme Court's summary of the three FCA Center elements actual knowledge, deliberate ignorance, and reckless disregard did not reflect its intention to place new limitations on any of them, nor impose a heightened evidentiary standard. Also in the past month, we saw our first case applying the Supreme Court's decisions Polanski to a challenge to a Department of Justice motion to dismiss. The 11th Circuit recently became the first Court of Appeals to use Polanski to affirm a district court's decision to grant DOJ's motion to dismiss a key temp suit over a relator's objections. That was quickly followed by a Second Circuit decision declining to reopen a key temp case, which the Circuit Court had delayed until the Supreme Court ruled on Polanski. We also saw our first case in which a defendant challenged the constitutionality of the FCA's key temp provisions following the Supreme Court's decision Polanski and Justice Clarence Thomas's shocking dissent. In a case before an Alabama district court, ExecTech Inc. has argued that the relators lack standing to bring the case under Article II of the Constitution. The motion to dismiss expressly refers to Justice Thomas's suggestion that the High Court should consider the competing arguments on the Article II issue in an appropriate case. ExecTech argues, quote, this is that case. Meanwhile, Senator Charles Grassley is continuing his efforts to amend the False Claims Act to make it easier for the government and whistleblowers to satisfy the materiality element even when the government has continued to pay claims despite allegations or knowledge of fraud. The bill would modify the FCA to expressly state that continued payments would not be dispositive of a lack of materiality if other reasons for payments exist. The bill would also extend whistleblower protections to former employees and direct the Government Accountability Office to report on the effectiveness of the FCA, based in part on the amount of funds recovered each year under the Act. We're also following a lot more cases in our compliance and enforcement news. Here's a very quick rundown. The Ninth Circuit has revived an FCA suit against Valiant Pharmaceuticals based on patent fraud. The court held that patent proceedings and prior news coverage did not indicate that the company committed fraud and thus did not fall under the public disclosure bar. A whistleblower has asked the Supreme Court to review and reverse a Supreme Court decision that established a strict standard of causation under the anti-kickback statute. The Circuit Court concluded that a 2010 amendment to the AKS required plaintiffs to prove that claims would not have happened if not for illicit remuneration. That holding created a court split with the Third Circuit, which declined to reach a similar conclusion about the 2010 amendments. In a statement of interest in Lauterbach v. Synovian Pharma, the Department of Justice argued against a motion to dismiss a key TAM action based on the absence of a causal link between the alleged kickbacks and claims under the Eighth Circuit's but-for standard. DOJ argued that but-for causation does not apply because it does not necessarily have to rely on the 2010 amendments to argue that a claim tied to a kickback is false or fraudulent. 
Rather, the department argued that because the government pays only for conflict-free medical care, it can assert falsity for any claim tainted by a kickback. DOJ argued that compliance with the AKS is a threshold and fundamental condition of payment by the government. In a separate but similar case, a Massachusetts district court applied the First Circuit's reasoning to reject the but-for causation standard in U.S. v. Teva Pharmaceuticals. The court also granted summary judgment in favor of the government, finding that a claim resulting from a kickback is per se material under the FCA, and that the government's damages is the full amount of the claim, not an amount minus the value of the services actually provided. On July 24th, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs received the proposed rule implementing the Department of Defense's Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program. That started a 90-day review period, meaning the rule could be published as early as this fall. Once the proposed rule is published, DOD will accept and review comments, which could add at least another six months before implementation of the rule can be expected. While we're waiting for that rule to arrive, an information collection request provided some details on the estimated burden for companies complying with CMMC. The notice included a draft of the model overview of CMMC version 2.1 and individual assessment and scoping guides for all three CMMC levels. New cybersecurity regulations issued by the Securities and Exchange Commission will go into effect on September 5th. According to the notice in the Federal Register, the rules are intended to enhance and standardize disclosures regarding cybersecurity risk management, strategy, governance, and incidents by public companies subject to the reporting requirements of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. While SEC had issued prior guidance applying these rules to cybersecurity incidents, the Commission found that such reporting was inconsistent, not always timely, and was often difficult to locate. Larger firms must comply with the regulations no later than December 2023, but smaller firms have an additional 180 days, with compliance expected by June 2024. The National Institute of Standards and Technology has published the final draft of version 2.0 of its widely used cybersecurity framework. The draft explicitly expands its scope from the needs of critical infrastructure operators to organizations of all kinds. NIST has also added a new pillar to the framework. In addition to the five original pillars, identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover, the new pillar, govern, covers how to make and execute internal decisions to support one's own cybersecurity strategy. The update provides improved and expanded guidance on implementing its principles, and NIST specifically asks for editorial input on the new examples it includes. Comments are due by November 4. NIST also has created a new searchable tool that allows organizations to tailor version 2 of their cybersecurity framework to meet their needs. The Department of Defense has issued a class deviation implementing an SBA policy directive that extends the period of time during which the government must protect technical data and computer software developed or generated under SBIR contracts against unauthorized use and disclosure. This protection period begins at contract award and ends 20 years after contract award. This directive also provides for the government to use and to authorize others to use on its behalf the data for government purposes. In late July, the Small Business Administration announced that the federal government awarded $162.9 billion in contracts to small businesses during fiscal year 2022. That's the highest dollar amount ever reached by the government in a single fiscal year, which accounted for 26.5% of overall contract spending. While agencies exceeded the annual goal of 23%, this year's share of contract dollars declined slightly from 27.2% in fiscal year 2021. While spending increased across the board for all subcategories, 
agencies again failed to meet SBA's annual goals for women-owned small businesses and hub-zone businesses. Notwithstanding that good news, SBA's small business programs were rocked by a pair of court decisions that could alter how the agency calculates revenues for size certifications and whether it can continue the 8A program. In a recent False Claims Act action, a D.C. District Court concluded that a small business contractor improperly based its self-certification solely on its tax returns without counting flow-through income as part of its total revenue. The court noted that the regulations expressly state that flow-through income is non-subtractable for the purpose of calculating revenues for size determinations. While the regulations say tax returns, quote, must be used, end quote, to calculate a small business's revenues, the court held the defendant could not ignore other clauses. SBA submitted a declaration stating that tax returns trump any other information, but the court rejected this assertion. The holding potentially upends SBA's long-standing practice of using only tax returns to calculate size. A district court in Tennessee recently decided a case in which Ultima Services Corp. sued the Department of Agriculture after it migrated services provided by the plaintiff to SBA's 8A program. The plaintiff, who lacked a rebuttable presumption of social disadvantage, argued that SBA's regulations establishing that presumption for individuals in certain minority groups was impermissibly race-based. The court agreed and enjoined SBA from using the rebuttable presumption of social disadvantage in managing the 8A program. The court has scheduled a hearing to discuss possible remedies. In the meantime, SBA announced on its certified.sba.gov webpage that it will pause new 8A applications while it revises the application questionnaire to comply with the court's ruling. The Department of Labor has issued a final rule overhauling the process for calculating prevailing wages for federally funded construction projects. Effective September 9th, wages can be determined based on the 30% rule, which refers to the wage paid to at least 30% of workers within a classification in a specific geographic area, presuming that a majority of workers in that classification aren't paid the same wage. The 30% rule supersedes the weighted average that had been used when there is no single prevailing wage paid to the majority of workers. The weighted average now will be used only when there is no common wage among at least 30% of workers. A new proposed rule would amend the FAR to restructure and update regulations focusing on environmental and sustainability matters. If implemented, the rule would require agencies to procure sustainable products and services to the maximum extent practicable. It would also require contractors to both use and deliver sustainable products under their government contracts. The rule applies to a broad range of sustainable products and services designated by the Environmental Protection Agency. For more than 60 years, Congress has passed an annual National Defense Authorization Act establishing budget and policy priorities for the Department of Defense. This must-pass legislation often arrives late in the calendar year and usually with a bit of drama. Traditionally, the bill includes language directly impacting defense contractors and which often spills over to civilian agencies. To break down this year's proposed NDAA, we recently spoke with professionals from Arnold and Porter's Legislative and Public Policy Group. Sarah Linder is a policy advisor with the group. She focuses on a range of defense and veterans policy matters. Her work includes assisting clients in raising their profile on Capitol Hill and providing analysis on federal legislative and regulatory policy developments. Sarah also helps clients navigate the appropriations processes by identifying funding or policy opportunities and developing strategies to support her clients' priorities. Yuvaraj Sivalingam is also a policy advisor with the Legislative and Public Policy Group. He has a decade of experience in politics, advocacy, and public service and advises clients on defense, trade, and energy and environment matters. 
Uvarai should previously serve as National Security Advisor to U.S. Representative Gilbert R. Cisneros, Jr., and served in the Obama administration in multiple roles at the Departments of Defense, Commerce, and the Treasury. And finally, Adrian Jackson is a senior policy specialist who supports the firm's national security, defense, and international clients. She works closely with clients on a range of federal policy issues, including defense, technology, and trade. Her work includes aiding clients in navigating the annual authorization and appropriations processes, identifying policy and funding opportunities, and working closely with Key Hill and executive staff. Adrian is a former Army Legislative Manager for the National Guard Association. She also served on the staff of then-Senate Armed Services Committee Chairman Senator James Inhofe as a member of his Defense, Foreign Affairs, and Veteran Affairs teams. Joining me today to discuss the NDAA with our guests is Arnold and Porter partner and Bonafide Needs co-host, Mike McGill. Hi, Adrian, Sarah, and Yuvaraj. Welcome to the podcast. For our listeners, so they recognize your voices, if you could quickly introduce yourselves. Hi, this is Adrian Jackson. Hi, and this is Sarah Linder. Hi, this is Yuvaraj Sivalingam. Come God help you. Great. So maybe we'll start. What is the current status of the FY 2024 National Defense Authorization Bill? Thanks, Michael. I'll, I'll take that one. As many of our listeners probably know, the National Defense Authorization Act is the annual defense policy bill that puts forward the Defense Department's budget and policies for the following fiscal year. It is truly the only must-pass piece of legislation left in Congress, and it's managed by the Senate and the House Armed Services Committees. The process kicks off every year in February with the president's budget release and the annual budget hearings detailing that budget following. And then this process continues through March as interested parties and stakeholders begin meeting with relevant staff to propose funding and policy requests. In April and May, you can typically expect Sask and Hass to hold their committee markups um, where they amend and mold the chairman's mark for the year following with floor activity, which is typically expected in June and July. This year, floor activity for both the House and the Senate took place in July, just a few weeks ago, right ahead of the August recess, which allows for staff to begin the conference process informally during that long recess period. In September, we are likely to see the formal conference process kick off with House and Senate companies named. The most controversial provisions of conference will be reserved for what's called the Big Four, Little Four negotiations, which includes the four corners of Hask and Sask and their staff directors. As it's been for the past few years, I think we're going to see final passage of the NDAA in December. We're going to talk more in depth on this later in the episode, but there are some pretty large potential hurdles to final passage. The House bill contains controversial provisions surrounding the DOD's abortion travel policy, transgender troop health care, and banning funding for a DOD DEI office. Of course, we have seen controversial items in either chamber not stop this must-pass bill from passing, such as the renaming of the Confederacy-era bases that we saw a few years ago, which did end up getting included. Like I mentioned, this is a must-pass. It's passed for 62 years in a row, ever since its creation. And with such a small majority in the House, I do think we will end up seeing that final passage. Sarah, Yuvaraj, do you want to add anything? 
I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of timing. And we did see an unusually partisan vote uh, on the House floor for final passage this summer due to the number of controversial provisions that were added. But ultimately, you know, as we'll touch on later in the podcast, many of those provisions generally get removed during the conference negotiations to allow for a, a larger bipartisan margin on a final adoption of a package, typically year end. So what are the, that's a great introduction. What are the key takeaways in the House and the Senate NDAA bills? I'm happy to start there, Mike. You know, one of the things that we have seen over the last several years has been efforts to counter the influence of China and the strategic importance of competing against Russia and China. And so, With the attention to particularly those efforts, there have been proposed in a number of NDAAs, as we saw unsurprisingly this year, various restrictions on doing business with covered countries, largely with a focus on China and Russia in particular. These limitations span from funding restrictions, research restrictions, partnership, and the ability to do contracting, all having to do with a range of national security concerns. But we'll dive into some of those specific provisions a little bit further later on in our discussion. You, Viraj, what what were some of your key thoughts? Thank you, Sarah. And thank you, Mike, for having us as well. What really stuck out to me was the emphasis on critical minerals and supply chain independence for critical minerals. So as the listeners may be aware, uh, as the country continues to consider electrification and increases our reliance on digital technologies, access to those critical minerals, which underpin those technologies, is becoming increasingly important to the extent which such access can be seen as a national security concern. When you add to that the fact that China dominates the market for processing these minerals, even though minerals are found all over the world, you have a recipe for increased concern on Capitol Hill. Uh, and sure enough, both bills, the House and Senate and DAAs, you can see Congress certainly does see it as a national security concern. Both bills are directing the department to develop a strategy for achieving supply chain independence for these minerals and elements. Now, by independence, we're talking about securing supply chain within the United States, but independence from covered countries, some of the countries that Sarah mentioned, like Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. The House bill takes it even a step further and calls for independence by 2035. They've set a specific target year to achieve that. They've also included a multi-year procurement authority for domestically processed rare earth elements. The Senate does also create an intergovernmental critical minerals task force to assess U.S. reliance on China and other competitors for these minerals. But you can see that both the Senate and the House have a number of provisions on this issue. They're deeply focused on it. I was going to watch through the rest of the process. Thanks, Yuvraj. What stuck out the most to me in both chambers this year was that despite modest budget increases from previous fiscal years due to the debt ceiling deal, we are still seeing increases in spending in areas of AI, cyber, and quantum information, science and technology. I think that we are going to continue to see this push from Congress for to force the DOD to turn to this new realm of warfare. I know that many on the Hill and off the Hill and think tank positions see the race to AI and quantum 
as the digital battlefield that will take on against China. So you continue to see this strong desire from Congress, and you also see it in policy initiatives to streamline, enhance, and leverage private innovation and technology to get to the Defense Department, which can be a little bit on the slower side sometimes. So Sarah and I are going to get into some of these provisions later in the podcast, but that was what I I found to be some of the highlights. Great. Thanks, Adrian. And that's a wonderful introduction to the key takeaways from the two bills. To shift gears just a bit, could we describe the notable provisions related to procurement and contracting that each of you thinks that industry should know about? that industry should be watching? Maybe you, Viraj, start with what you've been focused on? Sure. Thank you, Mike. There are three provisions that I'd like to highlight. The first are the provisions related to restricting emissions disclosures. As your listeners are probably aware, um, these provisions in both the House and the Senate NDAA come in the context of the Securities and Exchange Commission proposed rule and the federal acquisition regulation proposed by the Federal Acquisition Regulatory Council that would require uh, greenhouse gas emissions disclosures from public traded companies in the case of the SEC rule and prospective federal contractors in the case of the Federal Acquisition Regulation. The provisions are, however, very much distinct. The Republican-controlled House takes a much harder line uh, on emissions reporting, and essentially, they prohibit the use of any funds authorized in the NDAA to be obligated or expended to recommend or require any entity bidding for a federal contract to disclose as a condition of bidding any information regarding greenhouse gas emissions or financial risk, including the inventory of scope one, two, or three emissions, or greenhouse gas reduction targets for validation by a sort of third-party non-governmental organization. So that is very cut and dry, and it's, it, is, it is indefinite. By contrast, the Senate has a much narrower restriction uh, in the Senate bill, it states that DOD may not require any non-traditional defense contractor recipient of a defense contract to provide a greenhouse gas inventory or to provide any other report on greenhouse gas emissions indefinitely. And for the first two years after the passage of the NDA, uh, DOD may also not require any other than non-traditional defense contractor to do the same. So essentially, there's an indefinite prohibition for non-traditional defense contractors and a two-year exemption for everybody else, the big primes included. To be clear, for those that may not be sure what a non-traditional defense contractor is, that is essentially a business entity that doesn't currently have or has had in the previous year a full uh, current account standards covered contract or subcontract with the department. And to to be more specific, your company would qualify as a non-traditional defense contractor if they were a small business exempt from those standards, if they exclusively perform contracts under commercial procedures, or exclusively perform firm fixed price contracts as well. The the current account standards contracts are typically the big multi-billion dollar contracts for weapon systems or IT systems. What is also worth noting is that the White House has come out strongly against both Senate and House provisions in their statement of administration policy, they see this, frankly, as getting in the way of one of the president's core objectives, which is to get the country on on a path towards achieving some of the Paris Climate Accord goals and to get towards net zero procurement standard by 2050, which is in the administration's federal sustainability plan that was recently released uh, as well. 
it's interesting you Viraj, that that even the senate bill which you described as lighter would put on hold even for traditional defense contractors full-blown defense contractors it would put on hold their rulemaking essentially for two years yeah it would essentially exempt them from doing any such reporting for for, for two years it sounds yeah. like what the senate's attempting to do is give them some runway to prepare themselves for this reporting while lifting that burden for the smaller entities that do business with the department right indefinitely yeah yes the second provision that I wanted to speak about is this pilot program in the House bill for anything as a service. What is anything as a service? So it's a broad general category that refers to any tools, applications, services, games, et cetera, which are delivered to your computer or other device via the cloud rather than an on-premises or physical format. Folks can be more familiar with software as a service, so things like you know your Salesforce CRM, DocuSign, Slack, Office 365. Um, but there's also other types of as-a-service products. Platform as a service, which is a framework for application creation and deployment. Amazon Web Services, uh, Google's App Engine uh, provide services like this. There's also infrastructure as a service, which is a form of cloud computing that offers computational storage and networking resources on demand these types of services are typically cheaper and allow more flexibility. They're cheaper because you don't have to have the same kind of equipment or personnel on site to maintain them. It gives you flexibility because you can only subscribe or pay for the service that you are using. And if you want to scale or expand, it's easy to expand that subscription, if you will. And you're seeing more providers provide models whereby you can get from them software as a service, platform as a service, etc. So what this provision says is that the secretary or his designee in coordination with the military departments can establish a pilot to carry out prototype projects for anything as a service using competitive multi-sourcing for transactions of $100 million or less. Um, the bill is also called for a criteria to be developed such that to identify what kinds of tech would be eligible and the, the standards for the program as well. And the authority only lasts for about three years, but the idea appears to be giving the department an opportunity to pilot moving some of their systems over to a, a cloud-based structure and thereby reaping some of the cost benefit and flexibility gains that you would get from that. The third provision that I wanted to speak about is the modifications to foreign military sales. To be clear, foreign military sales are overseen by the State Department who reviews and approves them, but DOD implements the procurement and delivery of that sale. And obviously the NDA deals with that side of the equation. And these, these provisions come in the context of uh, many allies and partner nations grumbling about delays in procurement and delivery of weapon systems that are intended for them. The FMS processes actually have not been revisited or meaningfully reformed in several decades. The Department of Defense and State both did their own internal reviews of their processes and released their, their findings earlier this year. Nevertheless, Congress still decided to pursue legislative reforms of the FMS process in this year's NDAA. The, the Senate does include more detailed provisions on FMS, including directing the secretary to establish specific timelines for the completion of various steps in the FMS process. It creates a special account within the Special Defense Acquisition Fund that would allow DOD to receive contributions from 
NATO members and Australia to procure systems that they buy in a faster manner and authorizes combatant commands to hire up to two additional specialists to advise on on foreign military sales. And it also has provision to seek to improve training and education for the personnel responsible for FMS and other arms transfers. So the House has fewer uh, provisions. They tend to focus on the education and training for, for staff. But the House, separate from the NDEA, they did create a bipartisan task force to look at some of the existing FMS processes and procedures and how we can find efficiencies in that system as well. The, the White House has opposed not all the provisions, but the specific provision has to do with setting timelines for specific elements of the FMS process. The Statement of Initial Policy says, says that putting a timeline on such steps could undermine the efficacy of some necessary reviews that go into evaluating these arms transfers and could ostensibly then affect national security. So those are the three provisions that I wanted to, to highlight. Great. Thanks, Yuvaraj. There's there's a, there's a lot to chew on there. Uh, thanks for walking us through that. So, Adrian, maybe I'll turn to you now. Um, what are some of the provisions that you think that industry should be watching in terms of procurement and contracting related provisions? Thanks, Mike. Another area where defense contractors could see changes in the way they do business is with bid protests. A provision that was included in the House version of the NDAA would require any contractor who is denied a protest bid to pay the costs of that protest. This uh, would essentially establish a loser pays pilot program to reimburse the taxpayer for costs incurred from contract award protests denied by GAO. This section in the House bill would require the Secretary of Defense to set up the pilot program. It would be a three-year pilot program that would need to be implemented by two years after enactment of the NDAA this December. There was not a version of this provision included in the Senate, so it will be up for negotiation this fall. I will note that Congress has attempted to pass similar legislation in the NDAA in the past, but it has never been successful. I, I think it was last attempted in the 2018 NDAA. It has been unsuccessful in the past in part because the question of who gets paid and how much never gets specifically answered. And we saw this again this year, the provision in uh, Section 804 of the House bill containing the, the pilot program authorization. It, it, it's very light. It really doesn't say much other than Secretary of Defense, go set up this pilot program. And the benefits of a protest is it's one of the few tools that companies have to hold the government accountable for following its own procedures and regulations. You don't wanna remove that tool because it is a great check on government not doing what it's supposed to do. But I think what we're seeing is Congress wanting to curtail the number of bid protests we see from let's call them angry, angry losers. So we'll see if that gets included in the final bill. I'm sure Adrian that our listeners ears perk up whenever they hear protest reform and especially the possibility of a loser pays reform. But it sounds like your thinking is this is not necessarily more likely to pass this year than it has. It's not more likely to be successful this year than in the past. Yeah, Mike, I think that's right, especially considering that what I mentioned before, that the provision was not 
any more robust than it has been in the past. It doesn't really look like they did more than brush it off and try to pass it in the House bill again um, this year. There weren't provisions that answer those important questions like who gets paid and how much. So we'll see. But I, I think I think you're right. Well, in any event, it's something we'll keep an eye on. Definitely. If I may, another provision I I was looking at in the House side NDAA was the uh, modification of contracts to provide for inflation price adjustments. So in Section 830 of the House version, they have authorized the Department of Defense to modify existing fixed price contracts to provide for an economic price adjustment, which has to be consistent with the FAR and is subject to the availability of appropriations. And in the House report, the accompanying House report for Section 830, it says explicitly that they want to modify contract options based on inflation impact. And this would be consistent with FAR 16.203-2, which allows for price adjustments based on labor and material costs, but they have to be limited to contingencies beyond the contractor's control, which obviously would include inflation. In establishing the base level from which adjustment will be made, the contracting officer at the Defense Department has to ensure that contingency allowances are not duplicated by inclusion in both the base price and the adjustment requested by the contractor, which is once again consistent with the existing FAR. Again, this was not in the Senate version, so this will also be a provision we'll have to look out for this fall through the negotiations. Great. Thanks, Adrian. And then Sarah, was there anything was there anything in particular that you were focused on? Yeah, so returning to my earlier comments about uh, contracting restrictions and funding restrictions relating to doing business or providing support to entities that are located in quote unquote covered countries, both the House and the Senate bill have a number of new proposed provisions that place additional restrictions, whether that be on DOD or contractors or institutions of higher ed that are often um, government contractors as well, and how they do business with countries of concern, um, largely with an emphasis, again, in China and Russia. One of the most notable provisions that I wanted to highlight in the House version, there's a section 808 that specifically restricts contractors working with DOD from doing business with Russia and China or banned state entities. Those are entities on the terrorist watch list. And then the House provides an outline on a process in which contractors would have to provide a certification that they, as well as their subcontractors, do not have dealings with these countries on this list. And that the contractor would also be uh, alternatively required to complete an annual conflict of interest mitigation surveillance plan. And this would be intended to help with contracting oversight. So this provision requires contractors to be able to demonstrate they've had no involvement with banned countries with a look back period of five years. So as you can imagine, this could potentially create unintended consequences for companies who may have been doing business with an entity on who wasn't on the list initially a few years ago, but is presently and now what may restrict the ability for that contractor to work with DOD. Of course, the devil's in the details, and you know we'll we'll have to watch to see if this provision gets retained in conference. 
as well as how it is in effect implemented if it's enacted in a final package. There's a number of provisions that relate to research funding that continue to try to address the threats to research security. So on the House side, there was a floor amendment that further restricted DOD to fund directly or indirectly institutions of higher ed that are conducting any fundamental research with entities of concern or academic institutions or components of defense labs in the PRC. And on the Senate side, they also have additional restrictions and funding opportunities for universities that host Confucius Institutes. Um, there used to be, and there was in current law, a waiver process for those institutions that hosted Confucius Institutions, but this proposal would eliminate that waiver process. The Senate also has a provision to restrict DOD funding for institutions or researchers who contract with the Chinese or Russian institutions that are engaging in IP theft or are linked to military or intelligence services. We're also along the same lines of, you know, uh, research side. The House has a provision that would restrict funding that's authorized in the NDAA from being used to engage in any bilateral cooperation with PRC or affiliated organizations on biomedical research programs unless they have explicit authorities from Congress or the FBI. You know, some of the additional House provisions, there's far greater number of provisions, uh, you know, upward of half a dozen range from, you know, that that first one I mentioned that is broad in, in scope to ones that are very specific to certain sectors. So I'll just tick through a few examples of some of those house restriction provisions. There's one that prohibits DOD from contracting with entities that are engaging in boycotts of Israel. There's a prohibition on DOD contracting with consulting firms that do business with Chinese and communist parties, a prohibition from DOD uh, and USC ports from contracting with entities that use China-backed transportation logistics software. Uh, restrictions on DOD entering into contracts for procurement of goods and services with any person that has business operations with the Russian Federation or fossil fuel companies that operate in Russia. Although I will note that that particular provision does provide some exceptions for DOD to waive that due to humanitarian purposes or disaster relief or if it's in the interest of national security. There's some interesting similarities of identical provisions in the House and Senate, um, one of which prohibits DOD from entering into contracts for online tutoring services where personal data of U.S. citizens could be transferred to the control of PRC. That continues to be a major concern as it relates to data protection and privacy. And then, you know, as we are going to touch on uh, again in a moment, the House also has a provision which prohibits the Office of Strategic Capital at DOD, which is an office that was established for helping to identify and prioritize critical technology areas for DOD to invest in. They would be prohibited from investing in any entity that is incorporated under the laws of PRC or has an ownership of 50% or greater directly or indirectly by citizens of China starting on the date of enactment of the NDAA. 
So really a, a wide span of different provisions that could impact contractors and those looking to do business that might have subcontracting interests or concerns about, you know, their ability to work with DOD as it relates to some of these different proposals. Um, certainly not all of them are likely to be retained in a, in a final package, but it's no surprise that there continues to be a, a prevalence of attention in this space. Great, Sarah. That's very interesting. And, and it will be interesting to see how all those provisions settle out in the final bill. So we're used to seeing in the annual defense bills provisions that are focused on promoting emerging technologies. And I'm sure we see that in this bill. What are some things that jump out at you? And do you see any roles or opportunities for the private sector? Yeah, definitely, Mike. As we've highlighted throughout the podcast, emerging technology is really prevalent in this year's NDAA in the AI, quantum, and cyber sectors in particular. Congress sees each of these areas as a priority to invest in, even with the budget limitations that we're that Congress has set through the debt ceiling negotiations as we race against Chinese investment and bolster our cyber defense against adversaries such as China, Iran, Russia, and North Korea. We see the House and the Senate prioritizing these areas in several provisions. In one, the Senate bill would require the Secretary of Defense to establish a cross-functional team to support goals for the Nuclear Command Control and Communications, or the NC3 mission. If implemented, this provision will require each of the military departments and the NSA, DISA, and STRATCOM to work to enhance the NC3 cyber defense. The Senate also wants a report on feasibility of establishing a quantum computing innovation center within the Department of Defense, which would pull in our private partners in the industry to be able to spur advancement in the quantum realm. And then on the AI side, both the House and the Senate have several provisions, one of which I found interesting was on the House side, Section 930 requires a framework for autonomous capabilities. I'm sure many of our listeners are aware that the FY21 NDAA required a GAO report on DOD's AI acquisition efforts. This report was actually recently released, I believe in June. And it found that the DOD has not issued department-wide guidance for how it's each of its components should approach acquiring AI in a cohesive manner. So I think we're going to see through this NDAA already with provisions already written and in the coming NDAAs, Congress forcing DOD to look at exactly how to roll out their AI capabilities. And that's certainly getting back to the purpose of Section 930, which will require the Chief Digital and AI Office to establish a roadmap to integrate autonomous capabilities throughout all DOD systems. And then on the Senate side for artificial intelligence, Section 222 requires um, the Secretary of Defense to um conduct a periodic review of the AI strategy. So what I think we're seeing from both, while there are two different provisions, I think we're seeing uh, Congress force the DOD to really take a hard look at what its 
um, AI strategy will be and make sure that we're prepared as we move into, into this realm. Sarah, what else jumped out to you? Those were definitely uh, a few of the items that I thought were notable. And as you mentioned, you know, both the House and Senate have an authorization for increased funding and investments in uh, several new technology areas. There's a number of new pilot programs that are proposed in both bills, as well as some new roles at DOD that are envisioned to support the advancement of new technology innovation, which would help to support the warfighter. Big picture, one of the things that stood out to me in the cyberspace, in the Senate, there is a requirement that DOD have an independent evaluation of the feasibility of establishing a new cyber force as a separate branch of the armed services dedicated to cyber, which would certainly be a significant development if enacted. This could be modeled similar to U.S. Space Force. But there's certainly folks on both sides of wanting to see both support and those that are opposed to the creation of such a new branch of the military. But getting back to some of the House provisions, one of the things that stood out was in Section 803 in the House bill, there's creation of a new principal transition advisor in each of the military services. And that transition uh, advisor would be helping the services examine technologies from industry and academia that can support DOD. They'd be responsible for helping to identify technologies that are researched or tested by the department uh, that would meet military needs. And they would also be making specific recommendations to the innovation departments and informing program managers about relevant acquisition of relevant technologies that DOD should explore. So this may present some opportunities for the private sector. Additionally, in the House, They would codify the Defense Innovation Unit, which helps with DOD's ability to bring private sector innovation into the Department of Defense. Um, And they'd be tasked with helping to coordinate the enterprises on focusing on the fielding and operationalizing of those technologies. And third, another thing that I thought was interesting to see was some of the language in the House on examining ways to bring in venture capital in developing new technologies. So for example, there is a provision that would expand the domestic investment program to permit companies with venture capital ownership to be eligible for SBIR funding, which is something that may be notable for um, some of our listeners. On the AI front, Adrian already highlighted some of the, the different provisions, both in the House and the Senate. One of the things I wanted to just highlight there was a new prize competition in the Senate bill that was for technology that detects the use of generative AI. And the participants that would be eligible for this new prize competition would be federally funded research and development centers, as well as the private sector, defense industrial base, and academia. There's also another prize competition for developing modernized business systems, including those that integrate AI. On the quantum space, we see another new pilot. Uh, You can sense a theme here with the creating of many different pilots where they would examine um, near-term quantum computing applications. The goal there is to test and evaluate how quantum applications can be used to help solve some technical and research challenges that face the DOD. And that pilot, again, would also be open to FFDRCs and private sector entities. 
Um, so those are a handful of, you know, some of the, the key areas from quantum and AI. Just slightly going back to cyber, one thing, you know, after the passage of chips and science and a lot of attention in the semiconductor space, the Senate bill has a pilot program between DOD and NSA to assess feasibility for improving semiconductor supply chains and enabling the NSA's Cybersecurity Center to collaborate with semiconductor manufacturers. So that might be of interest to some of the folks involved in, in that sector. Uh, so certainly a whole range of things in the new technology arena from quantum to AI. There's also some clean energy related provisions in the Senate too, on developing of fuel cell electric vehicles and R&D on autonomous systems for seabed warfare, and even some interesting new investments on hydrogen for fuel sourcing. And I think that wraps it up. Great. Thanks, Sarah. Another thing that we've gotten used to, both in the annual defense bills, but also in other major legislation that's been passed in recent years that contains new investments, are domestic sourcing or Buy America or Buy American requirements. Yuvaraj, are we seeing those types of restrictions or heightened Buy America domestic sourcing restrictions in this year's bills, the House and Senate bills? Yes, we are, Mike. The House provision is a bit more, more sweeping. There is language in the House NDA that would increase domestic content thresholds for government procurement to include major defense acquisition programs that ramp up gradually up to 75% uh, beginning in 2029. So the threshold begins at the time of enactment for this NDAA at 60%, the 65% between 2024 and 2028, through 2028, I should say, and then on or after Gen 1, 2029, it increases to 75%. The bill does also include direction to the department to proceed with the rulemaking for a fallback threshold. So it directs the secretary to issue rules to determine the treatment of the lowest price offered for a foreign end product for which 55% or more is domestically sourced, but only if meeting the increased domestic thresholds results in unreasonable cost, or simply no offers are submitted to supply the items at the threshold required. And there's a sunset on that. So that will be put in place and that would expire uh, on January 1st of 2031. We can expect to see this in the final NDAA at the end of the year because the White House has expressed support for this provision in their state of administration policy. Uh, so there is backing from the White House on that. The Senate does have a couple provisions later to this that I wanna I wanna mention, but they are narrower. The enhanced domestic content requirement in the Senate bill pertains specifically to Navy shipbuilding. And that threshold goes up to 100% starting in January 1 of 2033. Uh, but the more interesting provision is a modification uh, to the definition of domestic source for the purposes of Title III of the Defense Production Act. And what this really does is allow products from the UK and Australia uh, to be considered domestic or fulfilling domestic content requirement if the technology or component cannot be procured or fulfilled in the US or Canada, and if it meets the definition of a defense article and materials critical to national security. And this is really one of the provisions that seeks to operationalize, if you will, the alliance that was signed in September 2021 between Australia, the United Kingdom, and the and the United States. 
Great. Thanks, Yuvraj. So maybe if we you know, to close this out, maybe we'll look forward a bit and ask you to sort of look into your crystal balls. How do you think that the current political landscape is likely to affect the passage of the 2024 National Defense Authorization Bill over the next few months? Do you have any predictions on how the process is likely to play out, the timing as to when we get a final bill? And where we have these conflicts, which provisions are likely, which versions are likely to win out, uh, which provisions will survive, which ones are likely to be cut? Yuvaraj, maybe I'll send that to you first. Sure, I, I can I can go ahead and start. So as your listeners may have heard, that has been covered in the press and on television news. There are a number of policy writers that made it into the final version of the House NDAA that are going to be very much unpalatable both to the White House and to the Senate. These are amendments to the bill that would rescind the Pentagon's program, uh, reimbursing service members who must travel to obtain reproductive health care. Um, it would limit the access service members could have to gender affirming care for transgender troops and end various diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion initiatives at the department as well. The Senate, just to be clear, does have a f- uh, provisions related to the DEI programs that limit things like how much a DEI personnel member could be paid or if it could even be, believe, be sort of backfilled if those uh, positions were to be vacant. The Senate bill isn't completely empty or, or lacking in certain provisions of, of this nature, but the House provisions are, are certainly more certainly more 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 sweeping and, and likely to pose uh, problems. The White House has been very clear about the DEI initiative that it's opposed to that, and it's of administration policy. I think you, you've you've heard from various members of the House Democratic Caucus, Senate Democratic leadership, um, and the administration. Uh, regarding the other provisions as well. I think you know this could be certainly a sticking point in conference when they will work to get to a bill that, that can pass both chambers. But ultimately, uh, I think what we'll end up seeing is that much of those, many of those House provisions will end up getting pulled out given that you have a White House with a Democratic president, uh, Senate run by uh, Democratic leadership, and ultimately a, a desire amongst most of both parties to see this bill, which has historically been passed on a bipartisan basis, pass similarly in its final version. But Adrian, Sarah, welcome your thoughts on that as well. Thanks, Yuvaraj. I would echo your your comments, particularly about some of the more controversial provisions on abortion and uh, medical care for transgender troops and DE&I um, certainly, they go much further on the House side than some of the lighter touches, if you will, on in the Senate bill. But we did see, you know, some remarks just earlier this week by House Armed Service Committee Ranking Member Adam Smith, noting that, you know, he thought if those three main issues, uh, limiting abortion, travel policy, medical treatment for transgender service members, and the limitations on DEI were dropped, they would see likely over 350 plus vote in support of the NDAA. Um, They've also talked about the openness of helping to support providing Democratic votes to make this bill cross the finish line, um, assuming that some of these more controversial provisions are not necessarily going to survive in a final package, which of course will lose support from a number of conservatives in the House, as well as some that might vote against it in the Senate. But generally, 
the you know precedent has always been rather overwhelming bipartisan support for the package um, being signed into law. And as Adrian mentioned in her initial comments, it's been 62 years uh, consecutively of being able to get this done. So there's always some interesting turns and political obstacles every year, but I, I wouldn't bet against it passing inevitably. It just might be a little bit longer process drawn out. Um, and then we, you we know, should probably we should probably knock wood when we talk about the sixty-two years. <laughs> That's true. There, I guess you know there there is certainly uh, a lot of uh, new, unfounded, or surprising things that have happened in recent years uh, in Congress. So certainly, uh, there there's never a hundred percent chance of anything. But I, I will note that for messaging purposes, there's always going to be added in things that are really important to the the party of control. So for example, in the House, we see they had a prohibition on, you know, half a dozen or more executive orders by the administration on climate action. I know uh, you, Viraj, touched on earlier, you know, some of the provisions relating to greenhouse gases, but some of those executive orders that they look to limit the implementation of through the NDAA also touch on, you know, climate change, catalyzing clean energy jobs and industries, as well as implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act. Again, we, we would expect that those are, are going to face a heavy lift to survive in conference, but would really be interested in hearing some of Adrian's perspectives here. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you and you, Viraj, have said. I think it will be an interesting conference. Of course, the public won't see a lot of that play out other than comments off of the Senate and House floor from, from the members to the press. I think that those DEI, transgender and the abortion travel policy, those those most controversial provisions really will be saved until the last bit of negotiations between the House and the Senate. But I do think eventually we see um, passage. Once again, I'll, I'll knock on wood, Mike. I think some other potential hurdles to look for would be this fight from the House Freedom Caucus. You know, they're already outlining a lot of their demands for stopgap funding, so a, a CR and then eventual um, appropriations for FY24. And one of those demands includes no more spending for Ukraine, which does not have support from Senate and House Democrats, and then also from many Senate Republicans. Some Senate Republicans are, are looking for a little bit more oversight, but really zero are in line with House Freedom Caucus members that we should stop aiding Ukraine altogether. As many of our listeners probably know, Biden sent forward an additional request in early August for $24 billion in supplemental funding for Ukraine. And that's when we saw the House Freedom Caucus make those comments. But I think that we do see, we see eventual passage of that as well. Since I mentioned it, with looking towards the fall and this almost typical at this point calendar you can set of CRs, continuing resolutions, and then December funding. I think that we follow that as well. I I, I think 
with the debt limit deal and the the requirement that Congress must pass all 12 appropriations bills by the end of December, or we see FY22 levels minus 1% across the board, I think everyone's going to be particularly motivated to pass not just the NDAA, but the corresponding appropriations for the Defense Department and the other agencies in a timely-ish fashion. Of course, one October would be timely, so uh, December is timely-ish. I think everyone will be pretty motivated, and I tend to agree with Sarah and Yuvaraj's comments that due to the slim majority in the House for the Republicans, if Democrats can get on board with passing a clean NDAA minus those controversial provisions. I think that's what we see if I had to look into my crystal ball. But I think it will be a really tough fall for Kevin McCarthy, definitely trying to navigate all of these hurdles in his first year as House Speaker with the House Freedom Caucus already looking for blood there. Great. Well, thanks so much, Adrian. Sarah Yuvaraj, a very thorough summary of the national defense authorization bills, the House and the Senate bills. I hope that we can twist your arms and maybe get you to come back and uh, provide your thoughts once it's, again, knock wood, uh, but in in late fall, early winter, when we actually have a bill, uh, if you'll come back and, and uh, provide your thoughts on the final as passed bill. But again, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right. It's Mike and Bill back to debrief quickly from that very thorough coverage of the two NDAA bills. Thanks again to Sarah, Adrian, and Yuvaraj for that very thorough coverage of those bills. We thought it would be worthwhile to do a quick lightning round covering a few additional procurement-related provisions. Yeah, there was a lot to cover. And of course, we couldn't cover every bit of language in the bills this time around. So what else stood for, out for you in the, let's start with the House version. What stood out with you there? Yeah, Bill. So, you know, the first one was Section 802. There's a restriction on selling, licensing, and transferring certain covered information, which is individually identifiable DOD employee data obtained through performance of a contract or subcontract. There's concern about DOD employee data in commercially available data sets, and this is intended to crack down on that. And then Section 804, this is a protest provision that Adrian had discussed. That would be a pilot program and not start until October 2025. And it would apply to companies with more than $250 million of revenue annually. As Adrian explained, the viability of that is still in question. Section 805 is a pilot program for prototype projects for what they're calling anything as a service. As Yuvaraj explained, that name's a little bit misleading from a lay or plain reading perspective because... It seems that it covers the traditional IT cloud services, software as a service, platform as a service, infrastructure as a service, and so on. The focus is on technology-enabled services that are provided as a service instead of a license. Section 808, it's called an OCI restriction, Organizational Conflict of Interest Restriction, but that title seems to be a little bit misleading. The gist of the provision, as I understand it, is that DOD would not contract with any company if that company or its affiliates provides certain advisory and assistance services to various foreign governments and organizations with ties to those governments, with a focus, as you would expect, on Russia and China. Section 829 would extend DOD authority to use Public Law 85804 to facilitate narrow relief to contractors 
to address inflation through the end of 2024. Previously, that authority would have sunset at the end of this year, so it's extended out one year. Section 830 would authorize DOD to amend contracts without consideration to provide relief consistent with the rules in FAR 16203 related to economic price adjustments to address inflation. So the guidance would be required within 30 days, which is an unusually short turnaround. The FAR rules contemplate agreement on metrics for measuring inflation that's already built into the FAR. So it'll be interesting to see how this is handled, how, how DOD handles this mandate in the required guidance. Section 834, this would narrow the statutory exception for certified truthful cost or pricing data. The commerciality exception would require price competition and receipt of two competitive viable offers and procurements contemplating award of cost reimbursement contracts would be carved out. And if you're listening to this, you probably understand that that would be a big deal if they were to change uh, those exceptions to what used to be called uh, TINA. In addition, but we'll have to we'll have to see if those survive, of course, in the final bill. In addition, Section 821 of the House bill includes an attempt to crack down on companies that refuse to provide uncertified cost or pricing data to allow for the government's pricing analysis. And it would require posting of the identity of those companies to FAPIS or another government database and also to make that information public. And there's a comparable provision on that disclosure in the Senate bill. So, Bill, that's what caught my attention in passing through the House bill. So what about the Senate bill? What language is in that? Yeah, there were a number of things, Bill, that, that jumped out at me. The, the first was Section 804. So that requires a pilot program for what they're calling innovative intellectual property strategies. They identify escrow accounts for IP data, what they call IP data, which apparently means technical data and computer software. Uh, another quote unquote innovative strategy is the use of royalties and licenses. And then there's sort of a catch all of other ways to address DOD's concerns with rights for OMET, which is operations, maintenance, installation, and training purposes. So each of the military departments and the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment will designate a program to use these so-called innovative IP strategies, and then they'll report on their experiences. Section 805 further promotes the use of commercial solutions openings within the DOD combatant commands. So you're going to see more use of those CSO uh, processes. Section 806 is intended to reduce the barriers to acquiring commercial products and services. It requires a study of how it, work, how it would work if there were a general presumption that the procurement is commercial, that a DOD procurement is commercial and then require a non-commerciality determination. So an affirmative determination to use other than FAR Part 12 commercial procedures. So that'll be very interesting. We'll have to see if it survives. That's Section 806. Section 813 is intended to strengthen DOD authorities to combat fraud. It changes 10 USC 4651, which provides penalties for improper gifts and gratuities for favorable treatment in the award, amendment, or evaluation of government contracts. It amends that existing statute to allow for stronger ability, the, the, the strengthening the ability of DOD to withhold payments and introduce penalties if the contract is complete and there's no further payments under the contract. Section 816 involves development of an inventory for price escalation indices. This ties back to economic price adjustment clauses. 
where relief would be contingent on movement in the index, pricing in the index. So this, this section 816 calls for guidance that would be used to apply the existing EPA clauses. It doesn't call for new clauses. It's guidance that government officials would use in applying those clauses. Section 816, this is aimed at conflicts of interest among Department of Defense consultants. It's tied to work, interestingly, under NAICS code 8516, which relates to management, scientific, and technical consulting services. That's the scope of that NAICS code. Contractors providing services within that scope would be required to certify, generally, that they do not have contracts with certain covered foreign entities, and that if they're not able to so certify, then to be eligible, they would have to implement a mitigation plan. Section 843 would require a change to the DFARS to require consideration of the past performance for affiliates when evaluating small business offerors. If that survives, it, it will be interesting to see how that plays out and is implemented. If affiliation is defined to align as that as Section 843 is implemented, if that's defined to align with affiliation under SBA's rules, the change might end up being of little value in many instances to small businesses because the affiliation could result in the company no longer qualifying as a small business. So you could have a catch-22 as this is written. You claim affiliation to get credit, but then become other than small due to that affiliation. Now, there's a lot of nuances to that, and that won't always be the case. And that same tension would not apply generally to Alaska Native corporations and tribes where they're exempt from affiliation rules. And so part of the impetus of this Section 843 may be to benefit those constituencies. And I would know that there is a similar but distinct provision in the House bill, that's Section 884. And that has an eight-year look back, um, which is interesting because that's an awfully long look back for past performance. Section 849 would eliminate self-certification for service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses. Now, that's a change. That's a shift away from self-certification that is already in progress. Uh, VA does not recognize uh, self-certified SDVOSBs, and self-certified SDVOSBs are going to need to apply to SBA by January of next year to retain eligibility going forward. The NDA would increase uh, in, in addition to that change, kind of pushing along that change. In addition to that change to the self-certification rules, which again is consistent with uh, changes that are already in progress, the NDAA would also increase the SDV OSB goal to 5% of all contracting dollars. Section 863 and 864, we'll have to keep an eye on them. Those relate to specialty metals. We'll have to see how those survive and how they change in the final bill and the impact of them. Section 867 is interesting. That would add the SBA administrator as a member of the Federal Acquisition Regulation Council, the, the council that's responsible for drafting the floor. And then lastly, Section 868 this is DOD's latest attempt to get the right to use contractor data, contractor-owned data that the contractor brings to the table beyond the constraints of the current and longstanding statutory regime on contractor-owned data. There would be a default, as I read it, of government purpose rights for use of detailed manufacturing or production data if that's needed for OMIT purposes, so operation, maintenance, installation, training purposes. And that bill, that's what jumped out at me from 
the Senate bill. It'll be interesting to see what becomes of these provisions uh, in the final bill, see what survives and what does not, and what changes there are to those provisions that do survive. That's great. Well, we'll have to do another breakdown probably in January or February after we get uh, an NDAA this year. Thanks, Mike. It's good to have you back on the podcast for an episode. Maybe we'll have you again soon. Good I hope. Here. And that's everything for this month. We're going to call it a day. You can check our show notes uh, for links to our blog posts and news articles uh, for any of the topics that you heard about in today's podcast. And we'll see you next time. Bonafide Needs is a joint production of and copyright Arnold and Porter, providing legal advice and thought leadership for government contractors, and the PubK Group, publisher of daily news and insights for government contractors and their counsel. This podcast is produced by Bill Olfer and Tina Chen.